Hello, it's Thursday, 18th of November. I'm Gary Bowman. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by renowned Bangkok restaurateur, cook, and food writer, Jarrett Risley. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So on today's show, I'll be chatting all things travel and food with Jarrett Risley, founder of Bangkok's acclaimed Soul Food Mahana Corn Restaurant and a couple of spin-offs, who is also a longtime food writer and book author. Jarrett and I are long-lost colleagues, having worked together on a few projects back in Shanghai. So Jarrett, thanks very much for coming on the show. How are you doing? And where are you right now? Because you're not in Bangkok. Hey, Gary. Um... I'm great, thanks. I'm I'm joining you from Bozeman, Montana, which I've improbably moved to about two weeks ago. It's uh, it's about two degrees below zero. It's gonna snow soon. I'm I'm getting ready to ski and uh, and have my first real winter in about twenty years. Right, that sounds fabulous, Jared. I've seen a couple of your post uh, your pictures that you've put onto. Instagram, it looks absolutely stunning. I won't tell you how hot it is right here in KL at the moment. I don't <laughs> want to upset you. We've got so much to dig into over the next 30 minutes, but let's start by sort of going back a little bit. You and I first met in Shanghai back in 2004. You were food and drink editor for That's Shanghai, which was the city's sort of English language timeout style mag- magazine. So firstly, what took you to China and why did you stay? Well, I mean, I think the thing that first took me to China was my fascination with with travel and and adventure. And and that really stems from like, I I remember my mother had like this huge backlog of National Geographic magazines, and I used to just sort of pick through them as a kid. And I just really wanted to get out of my hometown and then out of the United States. And, And really, I just kept moving further and further away. I went to boarding school when I was 14 because I caused some problems at home. And really, I just wanted to get the hell out of my hometown. And then when I went to study in university, I I took Mandarin and then I did my semester abroad in Beijing at uh, Beijing University. So that's what took me to China first was the study. But the real reason that I went there was because I, I desperately wanted to go to the Himalayas. I really wanted to get to Tibet. I wanted to experience Asia on my own. And, and you know, not in a tour group or, or something like that. I really just wanted to, to get out there and, and check out what was what else was going on in the world. Pretty much similar to myself. And I was lucky enough to be able to travel around China. I'm sure you were too, Jarrett. But we met in, in what was at the time one of the world's hottest cities in Shanghai. There was so much going on at the time. This was the, the early part of the, the 21st century. And you had various media roles at the time. You were doing lots of different things. It was a dynamic and it was a very, very exciting time for Shanghai and also for China, but particularly the F&B scene, wasn't it? Yeah, it was fascinating. And and there was, you know, to another point is that it was probably the only major metropolis in the world where a 23-year-old could be a restaurant critic and a, and a food editor. Um, it was it was fantastic. I I moved to Shanghai kind of on a whim, ended up living with with uh someone who was born I, I answered a craigslist ad for for my neighbor and i ended up living with someone that grew up in my hometown who became a close friend very quickly got a job at that i was always fascinated with food i had a restaurant background i worked as a bartender and a cook so i kind of understood what i was talking about in terms of the mechanisms of a restaurant uh, i certainly didn't understand the subject matter that i was writing about i was 
very much learning as I went. But I think at that time in Shanghai, everyone was kind of learning as they went. And that was what, what made it so interesting is that everything was new for Shanghainese and for us, everybody. That's absolutely true. I mean, at that time, I remember you and I, we used to meet at all these different events, these different restaurant openings. And, you know, you get these like international celebrity chefs will be coming and opening restaurants or doing like cooking presentations and stuff. And they didn't seem to know anything about Shanghai either. It was just this kind of melting pot of everybody was learning on the job, as you said. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. I mean, people were going in there, they were they were throwing money at it and hoping that it would stick. And if it didn't, it would slide down the wall and somebody would 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 throw something again. And that was what was so interesting about it. People were executing concepts, not knowing if, if, if the audience wanted these things. I remember going to, to, to so many restaurant openings where not only was it the first, you know, the first omakase sushi restaurant or the first, let's say, uh, fondue restaurant, not only in Shanghai, but in China. And by virtue of that, maybe in the entire region, except for Japan. So it, yeah, it was, it, was, it was extremely dynamic. It was very experimental and it was totally ad hoc. Yeah, completely agree. We worked together a few times on several projects and whenever I was managing an international content project and Chinese cuisine uh, information was needed, I always turned to you, Jarrett. And I was always quite interested about your fascination with the different Chinese cooking schools. So while you were there, you spent a lot of time investigating this, searching out new restaurants, searching out new young chefs, that kind of thing. What was your fascination about the secrets and mysteries of Chinese cooking? Well, I think it, it, I was very much drawn to the cuisines of southwestern China, Sichuan, Yunnan, and also Xinjiang. And the great thing about Shanghai and also Beijing was, was at that time, there was a lot of really basic regional cuisines that were totally underrepresented in in other places in in China certainly in Hong Kong and basically these cuisines whether it was Sichuan Hunan uh, Gansu these cuisines sort of functioned as as places where migrants would eat and much like when I go to New York and I want to eat you know Afghani food or at a, a Sri Lankan place this was the most interesting food to eat in Shanghai at that time, because not only was it unfamiliar to me, but it was unfamiliar to the Shanghainese. And so that quickly became a focus of, of my eating and, and, and study were these uh, sort of Chinese schools of cooking that were on the periphery, not in the mainstream. Uh, it's just more interesting to me, really. And the flavors are better. Yeah, I mean, you can only eat so much sweet, sticky Shanghainese cooking. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. Oh, we haven't upset too many people there, Jack. <laughs> so and, I'm trying to remember this, this correctly, but I think I'm right. While you were in Shanghai, you worked on a project with Anthony Bourdain. Is that correct? I did, but I didn't work in Shanghai with, with him. His production company approached me, I think, but I'm not exactly sure how it happened. I might have approached them to work on the Sichuan episode in Chengdu. I, my fir the first place that I lived in China after graduating from university was in Chengdu for about eight, eight months. I was a terrible English teacher for, I think, about eight weeks before I got fired. And, and then I took that opportunity to just go on the road. But I, I was very familiar with Chengdu as a place. And, um, and so I worked with Tony and his production team, 0.0, .0 I think it's called, on a show there. And I got to spend about a week with him. And because I was a young food writer and a cook and I had read every single thing that he'd written, it was absolutely, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime for me. I was 
just awestruck when I met him and, and when I got that job. It was a dream. It was fantastic. So that was what? That was about what, 2006, 2007? That was... I guess that was about 2006. Yes. 2005, 2006. And did, did he enjoy Chengdu food? I'm pretty sure he did. He absolutely did. I, I was with him, like basically sitting to his right or left throughout all the shooting. But because I was a, you know, a, a, an American, I, I wasn't on camera. They use locals for color and, and conversation. So they told me that they were very forthright and I didn't care. Um, they said, look, you're not going to be on camera at all, but basically well, we want you to answer the questions about <laughs> and explain what the hell's going on. And, you know, me getting to explain to, to Anthony Bourdain what he's doing was obviously a huge honor for me. So the last time I saw you, Jarrett, was at your Shanghai leaving bash. I think that was, what, 2008? It was a pretty swanky affair, as I remember. 2008. 2008, right, yeah. So you were moving to Thailand, and I assumed that you would be heading back to the U.S. But no, life took an intriguing turn for you, and you became a Bangkok restaurateur, and a pretty successful one as well. Uh, we'll talk more about your restaurant business in a moment, but a couple of questions before that. So I guess, firstly, why did you leave Shanghai at the time you did? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. One, I was very seriously dating um, the woman who's now my wife, and she her, her family is from Shanghai. She really didn't enjoy being there very much, and she so, sort of gave me an ultimatum. You know, you can stay, but I won't, or we can go. That was the first reason. The second reason was... Around the time of the 2008 Olympics, I could just feel, you know, the things that made Shanghai and, and China great at that time were, were changing. It was a country in transition and the fun was kind of escaping like air from a balloon. I just, they were kicking out people who didn't have proper visas, really cracking down on journalists. I remember writing a story about the Sichuan earthquake and think uh, an op-ed for a newspaper and thinking like, actually, they could throw me out of the country for writing this. And it just didn't seem like sensible place to stay if I wanted to continue to write. Because even though I wrote quite a bit about food, uh, I didn't like to restrict myself to that. And my, my writing often touches on politics and, and social issues and, and other things. Yeah, I would agree with you. Things were certainly changing around that time in China. But the second question, I guess, is, is what inspired your decision to start up a restaurant in the Thai capital? I was broke. For one, when I moved to Thailand, I was working for the Atlantic uh, in Washington as their Southeast Asian correspondent, but really just writing about Thai food and, and Thai politics and culture. I also spending quite a bit of time in India and Vietnam and filing a little bit for food and wine, travel and leisure, I think, South China Morning Post. But at that time, the internet really took hold everyone stopped buying print media. There was also a recession and basically nobody paid me for like a year, even though I had filed the story. So not only, so basically I, I realized that this was no longer a sustainable thing for me to do as a freelance journalist. You're always the last one to get paid when you're the furthest away. So I thought about what else I could do at that time. And the only other thing that I really thought that I could do was to open a restaurant. So during my time working with the Atlantic, I, I traveled throughout the country. I researched a lot of recipes and regional cuisines in Thailand. I met a lot of fascinating people and I opened a restaurant in 2010. So that was the birth of the concept of soul food Mahana corn, which became something of an urban legend in, in the Thai capital. And I'm going to read something that you wrote on Instagram, I think quite recently in hindsight, I guess. And this is, this is how you described it. You said it was to be a fried chicken and beer shack, a, a sort of isekaya honky tonk 
that play good tunes and serve mostly Thai street food with a few twists. A ramshackle spot that cooked things that reminded us of American soul food, but spicier. Of fried chicken and okra and greens and smoky barbecue, but in Thai form. We would care about the provenance of the food more than places, and the booze too. It was a Thai bar and restaurant in Bangkok run by a food writer from Pennsylvania. Few people thought it was a good idea. Many advised against it. So, Jarrett, tell us more. So, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty accurate representation of what happened. And I, I was really got like went down a rabbit hole with Thai fried chicken, um, which I still believe is firmly is the best fried chicken in the world when it's done correctly. And at first, I just wanted to open a fried chicken and beer place, you know, turn up the music. I was 28 years old at the time or 29 and have fun and make a little bit of money. But then when I started to cook and I found the space, the space was a little bit bigger than I wanted. It was in a little bit of a posher neighborhood than I expected. And then suddenly I sort of had the weight of expectations on my shoulders to open a serious restaurant. And I kind of did that to myself. I always sort of overcomplicate things. And it became much more than what I had originally conceived. So the the, the concept of soul food, I wanted to represent my heritage. I didn't want to be David Thompson or Dylan and Dylan Jones and Bo from Bolan who are trying to cook, you know, the truth, this this really sort of traditional Thai cuisine that's been handed down through generations. And I'm not that good of a chef, honestly. And I didn't I I didn't have that much experience in the cuisine. I certainly know more about it than most people do. So what I really wanted to do was create a restaurant that was sort of a hybrid of me and there. And in doing so, I I think I really did create kind of an iconic little restaurant that was representative of Bangkok at that place and time. And we did great. You know, the restaurant was packed and people loved the food and I kept working on it and, and it was wonderful. Two really important points there, Jarrett. One was that you kind of had this kind of simple idea. You wanted it to come from the sort of the fried chicken provenance. Uh, but you also mentioned that, you know, expectations changed as well, that you wanted to run a serious restaurant. Right from the get-go, really, Soul Food Mahanakorn received pretty impressive reviews, and it was, it was featured in many international travel, food, and lifestyle publications. So I guess that sort of ratcheted up the expectations a little bit. Did, did that influence the way that you developed the menus and the services, that kind of thing? I wouldn't say that the media coverage influenced the way that I ran the restaurant day to day or what I, what I decided to put on the menu, but it certainly pulled me out of bed in the morning and got my ass to work and, and kept me focused because it, you know, the restaurant blew up in ways that I could have never expected. And because of that, it forced me to, to work harder, to refine, maybe not refine. I don't think refine is the right word, but to, you know, consistently execute at a high level, change the menus frequently, change the drinks frequently, look for interesting wines and niche beers and and just and just work really hard to to create an experience because people started to travel from all over the place to eat there and the last thing that you want is someone who's on their honeymoon from paris or sao paulo to come and eat in your restaurant and not enjoy it that would be terrible so there was that weight of, of expectations because it did become quite famous. And you spun it off as well. You opened other restaurants, including Soul Food 555 and Appia. Would you say those days were sort of a high watermark for Bangkok's creative restaurant scene? 
I absolutely. I think um, be- between 2012 and 2015, Bangkok was, if not the best place in the world to eat, certainly one of the one of the few. I think when Michelin and the San Pellegrino guides came in, they really distorted the restaurant scene there. I'm happy to say that. Don't put me in your guide. I don't care. I think that they really had a negative effect on what was a interesting restaurant town with creative people doing what they wanted rather than what guidebooks and PR people and corporate sponsors wanted them to do. And it was great. And I'm super proud that I was a part of that. And the people who did build that scene, David Thompson and Dylan and Bo and Gagan before he became, you know, so famous and Paolo Vitaletti, my business partner and Tim Butler from Eat Me. There's this like, there's this whole generation of cooks that came up in Bangkok at that time. And we were just having an, an amazing time and we were riffing off of each other and we were cooking together and having huge events and it was it was wonderful the genesis of that restaurant you said actually came slightly before when you were working as a journalist you were traveling around thailand you were looking at different types of foods and and the way they're prepared the the ingredients that go into them so is it kind of fair to say that you fell in love not just with thai cuisine's diversity of flavors but also how it sort of lends itself to contemporary interpretations absolutely i mean it's always been a hybrid cuisine thais absorb everything and I've, I've written kind of extensively about this, you know, stir fried spaghetti with, you know, shrimp paste and Thai basil and chilies and peppercorns is like one of the best things ever with spaghetti. But the Thai is, it's a Thai dish. If you give that to a person anywhere in Thailand, they're going to have eaten it before. Say, oh, it's spaghetti, you know? <laughs> so, so you can play with Thai flavors and American barbecue. You can play with Thai flavors and fuse it with Italian food or Japanese food and make it distinctly Thai and of that place. The original cuisine, if you talk about Mon Thai, you know, was also influenced by the food from Laos and the food from Burma in the North and the food from Malaysia in the South. So it's just really open-minded and there's just so much interesting produce to work with. And Thailand's market culture was fantastic. It is disappearing and the food in Bangkok is definitely not as good as it was 10 and especially 20 or 30 years ago because of industrialization and other other factors and cost. But getting back to your original question, I was always amazed at how adaptable it was. One of the things that you guys did with all of your restaurants is you were very, very strong on social media. You know, the last 10 years really was when food imagery became such a huge part of not just marketing a restaurant, but it became part of travel. It became part of lifestyle, everything. And you guys were very, very good at capturing your, your dishes, um, not just in terms of imagery, but how you explain them very, very sharp, very succinctly, but also with a little bit of humor as well. So in terms of the dishes that you guys created, were there any that you would say would stand out as favorites of yours? Oh, well, I mean, to be fair, my favorite dishes were always the least popular ones, (laughs) but, uh, I mean, I love like the stuffed squid, pat ki mao with noodles, things like that. I, I, I like the, the weird crispy frog lop and things of that nature. But I think the things that captured the style of, of cooking that I was trying to express there were when I, when I fused a little bit of American barbecue technique and Thai technique, like my smoked duck lop is amazing. It's an amazing dish. And, and if I open another Thai restaurant or another restaurant, I'll put it in. Th- 
things of that nature where you know you take one good thing and another good thing and you combine them i'm not trying to reinvent the wheel i'm not saying this is mine but my favorite dishes would be like the smoked duck lap the eggplant salad with you know a soft cooked duck egg and house cured bacon that we made upstairs stir fried flowers and eggs which is a classic southern dish but you know if you put that next to something super spicy like a curry it's just wonderful it's very neutral most people who come through those doors have never seen it before just playing around a little i was just trying to cook the kind of food that i liked and i was comfortable serving to people because it was it was that kind of that restaurant's uh signature so you went through a decade really where the bangkok restaurant scene thrived it became very imaginative very creative uh, but then of course 20 months ago covid-19 intervened and bangkok's restaurant scene well pretty much collapsed you know, what was it like to be on the ground at that time it was horrible i mean it was really a a, a nightmare I, I don't i look i look back on it fondly only in the respect that i had very close relationships with with people and and they became closer i spent months at Bolan restaurant with Dylan and Bo sitting in their kitchen, drinking wine and scratching our heads and thinking about what, how the hell we were going to get out of it. That restaurant's now closed. It will, it will reopen, I'm sure, as well as mine. But what we, it, was, it was just utterly chaotic. At first, I think the Thai government, in spite of itself, did a pretty good job of controlling COVID. And then because of that, they decided to continue their policies without ever interpreting the effect that they were that it was having on our community, the hospitality business in general, the country, the economy. All they cared about was numbers, numbers, numbers. And you know what? Like you can't completely suffocate what makes your country good. Refuse to compensate anyone for these regulations and have no answers. And they had no answer. And they sort of hung us out to dry. So for your restaurant, was the, the biggest difficulties the fact that there were just so many tightened regulations, people weren't able to go out, there was also the, the lack of inbound travel, so there were no visitors coming into the city. You know, what were the, the reasons, what were the big factors that, that hit the restaurant industry so hard? Well, first of all, you know, we, Bangkok was the most visited tourist city in the world. I think we were having something like four or five million arrivals a month. When you go to zero, you realize that there's about 80% of the restaurants there are not essential. And they're gonna they're gonna die. We always thought at our at my restaurants that you know most of our clientele were locals, even at Soul Food, because but what but what I didn't factor in was the fact that people who live in Bangkok were taking their friends to my restaurant who were visiting from overseas. And when you when I took away that contingent, it was disastrous. You know, we went from doing a hundred to one hundred and fifty people a day to five. And then they cut off the alcohol sales for months at a time. They forced us to close at 6 p.m. and then 8 p.m. and then back to 6 p.m. And then they let us serve alcohol for a week and then they wouldn't. And very quickly, I realized that, that the uh, military dictatorship in Thailand had no idea what they were doing in this situation. They were just drawing straws and hoping that something worked. And what they weren't doing were speaking to people in my industry about the impact that their decisions were having on our industry. And when I realized that they didn't care, I also realized that it was time for me to leave. 
So you had, uh, I think, what, three restaurants in Bangkok, one also in Hong Kong. Are any of them still open? So yes, my restaurant Appia that is I, I own with uh, Paolo Vitaletti is still open as well as Pepina, uh, our pizzeria. And they're doing pretty well because uh, locals in Bangkok who have been stuck there for a long time, they eat Italian food. They go out and eat Italian food. Thais generally don't go out and eat expensive Thai food because they have cooks at home who can make it for them or they take it home because they, they you know, go to a street food restaurant or something like that. So it was a very difficult sell. Most, I think the, the restaurant sector that struggled the most by far were Thai restaurants and particularly Thai restaurants at the top end because we really, really needed tourists to populate those restaurants. And like I said before, a lot of locals went to my restaurant. A lot of locals went to David Thompson's restaurant or to Dylan and Bo's restaurant or to 80-20, but they were bringing guests. And when the guests didn't arrive anymore, they didn't come. I never would have predicted that, but that's what happened. Appia and Pepino are still open. Paolo's doing a great job and my team there. Paolo is is running it and and he and he's doing great. And and so they will survive. But Soul Food was my restaurant and and it can't really go on without me. So I've decided to close it. I think I could reopen it when the country really reopens to tourism and it would still be successful. But not living in that country and, and having my hands on stuff, I, I, I prefer not to. Right. So changing course slightly, you mentioned there you, your business partner, Paolo Vitaletti. And together you wrote a book entitled Roads to Rome, which is a, a beautifully photographed culinary road trip through Italy. Tell us more about that. So... After I opened Soul Food about three years after, I, Paolo was a good friend of mine, and he was in Beijing actually working for Amman. He came back to Thailand. He really we were going to open a restaurant together, and he wanted to open a Roman restaurant. Paolo's from Rome. He said that he really wanted to cook the food that he grew up cooking his mother's food, and I was totally into that. I'd been in Thailand cooking Thai food for many years, and the opportunity to go to Italy and learn. A, about Italian food was incredibly appealing to me professionally and personally. So I went with Paolo to Italy before we opened that restaurant. And subsequently we went back maybe 20 or 30 times and we wrote a book about Roman food. But when I was in Rome, I kept telling Paolo, look, I, I'm not Roman and I don't think I have enough here to write a book because you, I don't know if you've been to Rome or not, but the, the menus, especially in trattorias are very similar. There's five or six pastas that you see on every menu, artichokes, awful, tripa, things like that, um, sweetbreads and lamb and porchetta. If you're lucky, there might be a salad. <laughs> and so I just I just wasn't really sure how I could flesh a book out of, out of that. And then we started to travel in the countryside and I said, you know, what would be really interesting is if we just kind of trace the origins of these dishes and then traveled to all the places surrounding Rome and and cook with people and and meet characters along the way. And that's how the book sort of evolved. It also evolved that way because there was another Roman cookbook that was very successful. And so I decided to write a cookbook about the food in Rome through the lens of the countryside surrounding it. And that was great because it just gave me an excuse to 
leave Bangkok every three or four months and go to Italy and drive around in a car with my friends and eat. <laughs> so on this interview so far, we've talked about China, we've talked about Bangkok and Thailand, and we've now talked about Italy. Um, but you decided earlier in this year to move back to the US. Uh, what prompted that decision, Jared? Well, I mean, I was very, very disappointed with the like startling ineptitude of the Thai government. I need to say that because I think it's important. They had no idea what the hell they were doing during COVID. And they destroyed, in my opinion, Thailand's most redeeming industry, which is its hospitality industry. It will come back. I just don't want to be a part of it because if it happens again and they, and they do the same things, this will happen again. I think it's important to note that these shutdowns and restrictions have benefited people in power and very wealthy people all over the world because they've been able to consolidate their wealth and become wealthier and acquire businesses and real estate because of it. And I certainly think that was a huge factor in what happened in Thailand and something that people just aren't talking about enough. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, I decided to leave and I was initially supposed to move to Rome a couple of years ago and work on a farm that Pal and I have that we bought there. But that project, because of we our, our resources had been so drained because of COVID, didn't didn't materialize. And you know, I had I've lived outside of the United States for 20 years. My parents are getting old. I want to know my brother's kids. And my wife is also American. She's Taiwanese American, and her family are still alive. And we just decided to go back and give it a shot. I think COVID sort of laid bare all the problems that we have living in in these urban centers. You know, I, it was pretty miserable being in Bangkok during COVID. When you take a, a wonderful, vibrant city and you turn off what makes it vibrant, it not only seems not vibrant, it seems kind of rotten. And, you know, Bangkok without restaurants and bars and is it's not fun. And not only that, I've really been feeling a need to, to spend more time outside with my child, who's four years old, uh, for the last several years. So I, we moved back to the U.S. with no plan. We, I bought a Subaru and a tent, and, and we drove around in, in the West for about three and a half months. And we slept under the stars. We camped. We had campfires. I cooked outside. I met a bunch of old friends, rekindled some relationships with people. It was wonderful. It was really great. And, and it wasn't always easy because, you know, we were kind of running out of money. We had nowhere to live. And everyone was asking me, Jared, what are you doing? And I didn't, I couldn't really answer that question. Uh, we, after traveling and, and kind of seeing where we could fit in, we decided to move to Bozeman in Montana. I never expected to live here. Uh, it wasn't part of the plan, but I love it here. I love the access to nature. I love the mountains. It's a cool little town. It's got some good restaurants. I want to give it another good one at some point. And I wanted to be part of a community. That was the other thing that really distressed me during COVID was that, you know, besides the my really close friends in the restaurant business, Bangkok didn't really seem like a community to me. Everyone that could leave left. I was very uneasy about moving to another city. So I'm going to try this like, you know, this country life for a while. Um, I would like to do something here with food, but in the meantime, I'll be hiking and, and skiing and teaching my son how to ski and, 
and enjoying the mountains and the fresh air. Sounds fabulous and bucolic, Jared. It's been fantastic catching up with you again. Are we likely to see you in Asia anytime soon? Absolutely. I got to go back. I have a restaurant in Hong Kong that I want to go to so bad. I haven't been there since November 2019, but I'm not going if there's a 21-day quarantine. No one's going to pay for it. So I re- yes, I, I need to go to Hong Kong. I need to get back and see my people in Bangkok. Let's just wait until this thing goes away, and then you'll see me in Asia. Brilliant. Well, we'll have to catch up for a beer when, whenever you're back in, hopefully in KL or Bangkok or, or wherever we can catch up. Jared, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time and your insights. Thanks, Gary. See ya. So that brings us to the end of this edition of the show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments on what we discussed with Jarrett or anything that we missed out. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show or on Twitter at SEA Travel Show. Meanwhile, as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalog on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, CastBox, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. Just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. So that's a wrap for today, but I'll be back tomorrow with the third edition of our new weekly show, the SEA Travel News Show, when among other things, I'll be speaking with Malaysia-based airline and aviation expert, Shukor Yusof. I look forward to seeing you then.